Welcome back to season nine of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Latia Frazier, and along for the ride will be my ableist sidekick, Josiah Jones. Listen now for honest conversations about disability in the church. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, we have Justin. I'm excited that he agreed to do this interview. How are you, Justin? I'm doing well, Latia. How are you, my friend? Good, good, good. I guess uh, a good way to start would just be to say, like, who you are, uh, give our listeners an idea of who you are, and how you identify within the disability community. Excellent. I would be happy to do that. Yeah, my name is uh, Justin Hancock. I uh, live and work in the Dallas excuse me, the Dallas, Texas area, and I identify as a, um, as having or dealing with the realities, the way I like to say it, uh, cerebral palsy is my particular dis, uh, disabled embodiment. Can you talk to me about, because I, I, I like the way you put that, and I know within the disability community, there's lots of discussion around identity first language, people first language, some mixture of the two. Where where are you? Yeah, that's a good question. And I would tell you as far as day-to-day like language within my peer group and within my house, it floats. Uh, my wife and I, my wife Lisa is an able-bodied PhD uh, but we both do disability theology and advocacy work Uh, so when I am working in my ministry and doing advocacy and teaching and in teaching spaces I tend to prefer uh, disability first language because for me my CP is an is a a key constitutive part of my identity as a human, and uh, something that I am extremely proud of. So, although it floats, I do tend to favor um, identity first or uh, disability first language. All right, that's cool. I I would say, yeah, that I. I use a mix as well, but uh, if I'm in a space where I know that there's a mixed group, like people with and without disabilities, I use people first. But then um, in other spaces, uh, especially with others with disabilities, I use identity first language. So, yeah, just to bring it um, to center us in this conversation. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell me about your specific ministry that you are doing. Yes. So uh, I co-founded along with my wife, um, the Julian Way, um, which is an organization whose tenets and philosophy and theology are uh you know, kind of, not kind of, but are grounded in the teachings of Julian of Norwich. She was a 15th century English 
mystic who uh, had a series of visions of the uh, crucified Christ when she was very ill, and um, that's what her main work was based out of, or her main writings was based out of. Uh, interesting trivia fact with which you can either impress all your friends or no one in particular. Um, Julian is the first woman to uh, write and publish a book within the English language. But why we are drawn or were drawn to her teachings for a disability ministry is uh, <laughs> she talked about all of God's creation being God's good creation. And we really try to live that out and talk about uh, creation and human existence being, uh, <laughs> pardon me, being a reality of diversely embodied uh, persons. So we don't see disability as a hindrance or a lack or something to be lamented, but as a mark of God's creativity and something to be explored, celebrated, and uh, another way for God's gifts to come through, I would say. So that's the work I'm doing. We have two main things that we do. My wife and I teach churches um, how to be more inclusive and integrated. We mostly do that through a teaching we developed around anti-ableism. And uh, we also help churches with their physical structure, their like relational structure, be more open to those disabilities. But in addition to working with churches and civic groups and teaching in those spaces, we also... Um, do have daily relationships with a wide variety of persons of all ages and types of disabilities to sort of be a community together and lift each other up to help us all discover where God is calling us now, where God is calling us next, and how to be empowered by our uh different disabilities and different embodiments can you uh because i don't remember but what denominational tie if any would you say that you land in that is a uh a good and surprisingly nuanced question um i myself am a uh ordained United Methodist pastor. I'm an ordained deacon in the North Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. And as I like to put it, I am I am Wesleyan and United Methodist down to my toenails. Um, but because our group tries to use a cultural model of disability, which means if you have a story of disability and you claim that reality, we want to be in relationship and journeying with you. 
we are very non-denominational and some might even say you know we have a wide uh circle of what christian is and we have people who would identify as evangelical and people who have both both a foot in the um experience of African diaspora Christianity and Islam. So I am I'm United Methodist, but we in the Julian way basically our philosophy is if you consider yourself journeying with God or asking deeply spiritual questions, come on, we want to party with you. Can you tell me about your experience of uh, the process of ordination or um, did you have a sense that your calling was to do something specifically related to disability or did that emerge? Man, you ask good questions. I should I should have you as a guest on my show. Um, you get right to the heart of the issue. Um it's also because I'm a New Yorker, we're direct. <laughs> so my best friends lived in, in Brooklyn for 17 years, so I have learned to keep up. Um, <laughs> so that's actually intriguing because I hear all these horror stories of uh, persons of diverse embodiments, be they... Uh, neurological or physical or a combination of either or more and of ordination and the hardship that it is and for me that was not the case at all I and I know I was extremely blessed I was in a church from a very young age I knew I was going to be a pastor I wanted to be a pastor from a very young age. So I had a very, uh, like, I described myself as, and without an ounce of bragging, I, but as sailing through ordination, mm-hmm. which has, in a way, made me more aware of the challenges that my uh, diversely embodied brothers and sisters are having right now in the ordination process because I am so conscious that that wasn't my experience but I am so aware that there is so many of my brothers and my sisters experiences uh, that that is that is an area where the Julian Way as a ministry is just beginning to have conversations with the various uh, uh, credentialing boards and really trying to help open the way for accommodations in that area. But as to the second part of your question, <clears throat> did I have any inkling? that I was going to do disability ministry or a disability-focused ministry. No, I really didn't. And I was I was raised by two great parents. I had two brothers who never let me fall behind. I had two, I had friends that were like 
no, no, you don't understand. If Justin isn't coming, nobody's coming. Um, and they, as I often told the story, my brothers beat on me just like they beat on each other. So, uh, I, I can relate to that. My brother's like, so? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I grew up in an able body, in a largely able bodied world, which was great at the, which for me was fabulous at the time because I didn't know what I wasn't supposed to be able to do. Um, but what that created was in college and seminary, and as I started to come to grips with what I call the ministry, it was like I, I went, I looked at disability ministry and said, I don't want to be typecast as the, the, uh, dude in the wheelchair. So I'm going to do, I'm going to go as far away from the disability ministry as you can possibly imagine and do college ministry for several years, which I, I still love college kids. That's probably my favorite group to work with. That's why my, the, uh, the makeup of the Julian way has all ages, but tends to lean pretty heavily in that 25 to 33 year old range. But, uh, so no, I didn't grow up and didn't think about doing disability ministry, uh, initially. And I think the, uh, the journey towards that is its own question. So I'm going to stop rambling for a bit. Yeah, no worries. That's, um, I want to talk a little bit more about this, like typecasting thing. Um, I think that, uh, I ha I actually have a question about that. If I could interject, did dude. you read my mind, Letia? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I saw you looking at me like, hold on, are you gonna? Yeah, I was like, wait, you... yeah, get to go. I I I know that that's something that I I've seen happen with Latia and especially in in other interviews with other folks on the show. Uh, to this point, there seems to be a common thread where none of them are, oh, I'm the lead pastor of this local congregation, right? I don't think a single, has, has a single one of our guests that's a pastor been just a, you know, just a run-of-the-mill lead pastor? So if I if I put the, and I know we kind of like tried to, there's trick. said one of our guests, we can, we can take this out, but Hank was the only one who said he was, but it was like a small, like, rural church somewhere yeah but none of them are currently doing it right no 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 okay well so I, and i know i know we kind of put the disclaimer at, at the beginning of of every episode and we've warned our guests that i'm going to try to be ableist on purpose and i'm not doing the best job of it half the time but i got one i got one but as just like a lay person uh for you justin um do you think that the typecasting has everything to do with um you know, what we, cause we, everything that we want to be the best of the best, the, you know, the perfect, like I, I clearly remember being a, an associate at a church. And one of the reasons the board hired the pastor, they were going to hire to be the new lead pastor was because he and his family were photogenic. That was one of the things told to the congregation. Right. But then further than that, you know, and this is where I'm going to intentionally be ableistic. Cause I, I might assume that this is a concern that the average attender might bring to a church. 
even just like the sermon delivery itself, right? Like uh, how voices are affected by disabilities. Is that something that you think lends itself to sort of this typecasting ableist approach to, uh, you know, pigeonholing you into a particular type of ministry? Yeah, yes. Uh, to be quite frank, I think uh, to, to not be ableist requires us to slow down and be much more careful with our language and our questions and our thought process processes. And I don't think churches as a an entity often slow down enough to let an anti-ableist um, uh, framework take hold. If I can digress just a little bit, I didn't really embrace an anti-ableist stance until 2020 as as all I must do with did when the churches shut down and I was beginning to do this sort of um, in the world ministry known as Julian Way, but there were no churches to really relate with at that time. I just read everything I could. And one of the things that I read was um, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I can remember sitting in my bathroom and I'm about to curse on your show so you'll get to use the bleep function. I just remember sitting in my bathroom and going, oh, well, now I need to change everything that the Julian way is about. <laughs> I have to go back to the drawing board because it just blew my world up. Um, and one of the things that he and believe that is in that book and several others is that uh, in his case, uh, racism, but in our case, ableism, it's like the ocean. Like a fish doesn't need to know what, what, what water is to get wet. So I deal with ableism. You deal with ableism. We all deal with ableism. It's just what do we do in response and how do we move closer to those with disabilities instead of what ableism intends to do and it would just separate us from the other well so that wasn't too abstract but yeah no, or or it tries to make those of us with disabilities move uh attempt to move closer to uh the standards of what it is to be non-disabled yeah yeah okay what well, and you said a thing in there too that i think could be very easy to to have me the the um am i a token ableist is that what we can call me yeah, this show? Let's see. okay oh. i'm the token ableist i've never been a token before um <laughs> but uh well maybe i have been i don't know for other reasons but anyways when you say anti-ableism, I just immediately am drawn to all the kind of like the fear-based responses to CRT. It's like, don't make me feel guilty for being able-bodied. Why are you shaming me for being able-bodied? Why are you against able-bodied, right? Because that's going to be, I sadly, I, I do anticipate that being many of the responses. So can you 
uh, in a way that's not just me being tongue in cheek. Can you unpack a little bit about the practical approach to what you mean by anti-ableism? Because I, I don't think you're actually saying I should feel ashamed for not having a physical disability. But for those that might think that, what are you actually after? Well, again, if I could uh, trouble the waters a little bit, I'm please gonna do. Posit, I'm going to posit something that I I may not fully have investigated yet, but I think the Holy Spirit has led me here. So I'm going to go ahead and say it and do it as carefully as I can. I'm not entirely convinced that shame is always a bad thing in certain okay. circumstances. That's fair. That's fair. Like, part of the reason I want... No, I don't want to belittle anybody, and I don't want to um, go into rooms when I teach about um, anti-ableism. I go, well, you should be ashamed, and aren't you glad that my wife and I are here to save your bacon, you, you know, you know deliver you from out from what your cloud of ignorance. That's, that's not it at all, because when I do that in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to do something that's just as ableist as anyone in the room, so there we go. Um, but I think I think we should be troubled by racism and by classism and by ableism. I think those things should disturb us and stir us up. But what I what I hope we mean by anti-ableism is if ableism seeks to put a barrier between those with disabilities and those who are the non-disabled and and separate us and make us further apart. All that anti-ableism is asking is to move in such a way that draws you closer to those with disabilities and causes you to think about accessibility beyond the building and, and, and yes, Physical structures are a part of that, but how does your language uh, create hospitality? How does your uh, the way your um, curriculum in your church or the way your, your organization is pointed socially, if you're a secular organization, create ableism or ho hospitality? So it's really a mindset of drawing the disabled and non-disabled closer together. Well, thank you. I appreciate that clarification. I think that helps dispel some ableist assumptions. Is that what I'm going to call it, Latia? Yeah, that's good. You know what they say about assumptions. We can't Oh, I, I, I do know what they say. People <laughs> <laughs> they are. Um, that made me think of a question, Justin, because this is one that I often get with folks. So in some church spaces, when folks read the Bible, they invite folks to stand as a as a sense of like reverence and respect. Um, but I think some people have tried their like they they have some awareness that like 
asking people to stand may be ableist or may leave folks who, who are unable to do that out. And so now they say things like, stand if you're able or stand in body or in spirit. Um, what is your what is your take on that? Because I have a whole take on it, but I'm curious to know what you think. Yeah, I wish there were different social marker for holiness. I wish that standing didn't come into it at all. Mm-hmm. However, you know, um, back here on Earth in the world we currently live in, that's not usually the way it is, the way that it is it is set up. So if I have a if I have a favorite or a way to think about that, stand in body or spirit is about as good as it gets in my book because um that allows that the spirit is active whether you're however you want to think of the physical body. Now, again, I I wish that standing were not a part of it. And very, very occasionally, if I am running a service, I will have people stand up for a couple of minutes preceding the reading of the gospel, and then I will have them sit down as a way of refocusing their attention, just to sort of put up flip that uh, usual narrative on its head. Now, it's very rare that I'm able to do that because it takes it takes some explaining and some real buy-in from a congregation to go there with me. But occasionally I will, I will try to flip the script on that very, on that practice. Yeah, that's, a, that's some good feedback. I tend to tell people not to use that uh, because for me to say to stand in body or in spirit is also promoting this sort of Gnostic uh, understanding of our bodies and embodiment. And that is to say that like that we are somehow separated from our body and our spirit, but to have an embodied theology says that we are whole beings. And so as I've been thinking about it, what would I tell people to do? And I don't know about you, but when I grew up in public school, we had to stand usually um, and put our hand over our heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm just wondering if we can put our hand over our hearts to show respect for the flag or our country or whatever, um, why then can't we do that for showing reverence or respect to God. And so I, I offer either put your hand over your heart, uh, stand, because for some people that is a way that they embody it, or in whatever, because mm-hmm. what you're trying to do is call people to have a posture of reverence or respect. So mm-hmm. what if a person doesn't have a hand? Like figure out a way that that uh, for you displays respect, right? Or among yeah. So to be more creative about that. But yeah, that's a good discussion. I do want to get back to this question that I've asked all guests so far on the podcast. And I'm just curious to know what your response would be to it. Um, So if, let's say, a, a company created a pill 
or um in a church someone offered or asked if it would be okay for them to pray for you and by either taking the pill or oh being prayed for you would no longer have cp would you take it um on mondays wednesdays and fridays no on tuesdays and thursdays maybe yes um and i'm what that that is a very sarcastic response yeah right um and i'm but i'm what i'm what i'm hoping to um um get across in that answer is that it varies um I would say just as just as if you were asking Justin Hancock sitting right here, which you are, that's the purpose of this podcast, I'm gonna say absolutely not. I wouldn't take it. Because as I said in the beginning of the show, disability is a very important part of my constitutive identity. Um but one of the authors that I, that I have read and really come to respect um, in this regard, and someone that helps me hold things in tension because it's a good Methodist, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of things can be both things. Uh, things can be more than one thing. Uh, and Allison Kafer, who wrote... Um, um oh my goodness i can't remember what the name of what the uh title of allison's book is but she's a queer sort of queer and disabled uh social theorist uh and she talks about her her experience of disability is out of suffering severe burns and having hospitalizations and being ultimately wheelchair wheelchair user because of a number of uh, events and causes and she talks about um yes feminist queer crowd thanks for putting that in the chat yeah i was looking at you erica yes okay yeah and I, I really do try to read that book once a year and just sometimes i get see cerebral palsy brain and things just fly out of my left ear uh but I love what she says in that book, that there are days when you would be foolish, like not to say that having a, a more physically uh, mobile and like physically responsive in the classical sense body wouldn't be easier. And to like, to admit that there, or to deny that there is tension there and and some sense of longing there is is uh not totally a productive thing to do but um i actually have a story from very early on in my ministry life when i was a young 19 year old sophomore in college and I was in Chicago and we were on a week long mission trip to inner city Chicago and we can get into how I feel about the politics of those things now being a, a white kid from 
West Texas and inner city Chicago, but it did make me fall in love with inner city Chicago, truly. But we're hanging out on the sidewalk after service one Sunday at the Pentecostal church where we were worshiping and staying for the week. And someone came up to me and said, can I pray for you? And even back then, before I had a clue about disability theology, I said, I, I never turned down prayer. I'm going to go into ministry myself. I love prayer, but you need to know that God and I have talked. He's okay with me where I am, and I'm okay with me where I am. And that man went from, can I pray for you, to calling me names that I would not call the mother and the goat of my worst enemy within about 2.3 seconds because I didn't want to pray within his healing framework. So that that question has not... Uh, proven not to be one, to be one that is not without a, fry, a fraught history for me, so. Which I think is true of many of us with especially physical disabilities, but others as well, like that question is like, I guess it uh, depends on the day, but also like uh, has a lot of trauma around that and church trauma. Uh, I think about that in terms of every time I'm at a church and they're about to do an altar call, it makes me like freak a little bit. Uh, and then yeah. also just like when I'm in conversations with people and they start to say, don't you know that God could heal? And I just look and roll my eyes. Um, so, or tell, tell my friend, watch, this is about to happen. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. Heads up. This is a killer. <laughs> Yeah. Do you feel like having CP has shaped your body image or how has it shaped your view of God? Um, I really think it has shaped um, my view of God, particularly in the way that God uh, the way that God and uh, I relate to time. Uh, I do not tend to be one that, no, this is very interesting, because I tend to be a worrier. I tend to, like, find a thing and fixate on that thing, and in prayer, God, I can feel God often saying to me, look, I've got this handled. It's okay. You're going to be okay. But that having been said, I don't tend to expect God to rush because in my world, it's just going to take me longer to do things. And it's going to, like, I like to be out in public. I like part of the the origin story of the Julian Way was I was also living in community and in some community for the first time. And folks that were my congregation at that point were a group of middle-aged, uh, like, 
everything from Unitarians to agnostics to atheists who were at the Starbucks coffee shop that I was at three to four times a week. And we just started talking about God, life, and sports and everything else. So, but I love to be in settings like that because so often people don't get to move with a disabled body or understand that I'm going to get things done. It's just gonna, what takes you 45 seconds, and by you I mean the non-disabled person, so Josiah, uh, 45 seconds, going to take me five minutes because it yeah. just does. Um, so I would say that it is shaped um, me in those ways. What's interesting about the the last question that we just talked about, the healer, would you be healed or not question is, um, I never expected to fall in love and get married and have children. And I now my wife and I talk about it. Um, when we fell in love, it, it was my cerebral palsy body that was a key part of that uh, attraction experience, not in any sort of, like, weird, you know, fetishy way, way that could be another topic for another podcast. <laughs> oh, dear. But, but in a, like, she, she's always said, look, I don't know how I would react to you if your body suddenly didn't deal with CP because that's not the body I was attracted to do and that's not the body I fell, fall, I fell in love with. So, you know, it's just, I like, I like myself and I hope, uh, I hope people learn to like themselves more because they see the way I try to inhabit the world. Yeah. I love that. I think too, um, and it kind of goes back to a little bit of Josiah's comment around the person that got the job or the family, whatever it was, because they were photogenic. And I've had um, more than once conversations around, oh, I don't know how well you'll do in a ministry because you're... Uh, you're not married, and I don't know if you will be because of this idea that folks with disabilities maybe won't, and I don't think, uh, and then won't have the kids and won't have that like uh, pastoral image. So I, mm -hmm. I just love that you, uh, you and many other folks with disabilities kind of, kind of uh, challenge that perception, right? That like people with disabilities mm -hmm. live full lives single or married kids or not yeah uh, but like it's not a whole separate existence and uh mm -hmm. yeah so well good to point out um i'm wondering what advice would you give to i mean you're methodist so you sort of know that we have a similar thing in nazarene church uh ministry boards that are in the discerning process with folks uh, who feel called to ministry. You did say earlier that you uh, 
you know, you yourself didn't have much of a challenge, but you are connected to books. You are having challenges through the process. So what advice would you give to folks who are on these boards? The number one piece of advice that I would give to folks who are on credentialing boards, whether they be board to board ministry in the Methodist Church or my main colleague at the Julian Way and the person I the person that vindicates for me every day that you always hire people that are better at your job than you are. Um, uh, is a member of the uh, um, United Church of Christ and in the ordination process. So whatever your credentialing system is, uh, slow down long enough to allow a person with a diversely embodied reality or as we would classically consider disability to narrate their experience to you as much as they are willing to or wanting to. And if you are wondering if something is a part of a person's disability experience, do it kindly and do it uh, generously, but ask them, hey, I'm noticing that you do you do this in the interview or you when you come to interviews with us, I've seen you do this a couple of times. Is that related to your disability experience? If you don't want to share that, you don't have to. Um, but why I say allow a person to narrate their own experience as much as you you can is I I know folks that are either stuck in between the reality where their disability is never mentioned but you get to the end of the process and you just know that it's in the room like a two-ton elephant or they are forced to disclose and forced to open themselves in a way that doesn't feel safe to them so as much as uh, boards of order and ministry or other credentialing bodies are, are capable of, we've got to uh, let everybody narrate their own experience and their own embodied reality in the way that best works for them. Let it come into the conversation of the process, but don't let it be the dominant, like, deciding vote. Just let him be a part of who that human being standing or sitting or, you know, before you is. Which is a good, which is my, my staff teases me that I'm about as good as, as anyone is as sitting on the fence. And that feels like a good way of sitting on the fence. But I hope that answers the question. No, I think it does because I've been in ministry interviews where I can very much tell the difference of whether like they're seeing my disability is just a part of who I am just as anything else is because there might be some questions around my disability but then there's also questions about my theology, my call to ministry, all these things. And then the opposite is also true that I've been in um 
boards of ministry or uh, job interviews. Uh, I'm thinking of as a chaplain where the only thing that is asked of me is uh, questions about my disability and how I'll function, which are illegal. Uh, but but like that's the main focus and not actually what the what I'm being called or asked to do. So I think yeah, that, yeah, I think that that's true. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is called to ministry as that is living with a disability uh, and and going through that process? Mm. I think my advice would be, hopefully what my advice is to, um, to everyone I come across uh, who is diversely embodied, whatever they're endeavoring to do, um, is to know your know that you are called by God know that well know that you are loved by God first and you are not loved by God because of something you will be or you could be you are loved by God because of who you are physically developmentally mentally emotionally all of the you know things we want to categorize people with. You're loved by God with all of that right now. And if you feel called by God, the you that is right now is called by God. So for me, I live with cerebral palsy. I bring my cerebral palsy as a an empowered part of my ministry into every room that I'm in. <clears throat> and it's a part of my calling. So I would hope that we are raising a generation of uh, folks with diverse embodiments who are not trying to overcome or compensate for their uh, diversely embodied reality, but are bringing it full force and proudly into every room that so they're like, in. No, uh, like super crip images or, uh, uh, or what is the word? Inspiration porn, but like, but yeah. Yeah, I was gonna ask, I was gonna ask what super crip is. Uh, that's another term that I haven't heard before. Um, so super crip is this term that is used in the disability community where society does the, or tries to do this really well, right? This thing about, uh, and it's ableist of like, you can overcome your disability. So they'll have images of people like, oh, they're running a, a marathon or like, so you find a way to objectify, like if this person can do it, you can too. So you find this like superhero-ish type person. Um, and so people with disabilities sometimes struggle with, yes, I have CP, but I'm not going to let that like limit me or make you think that I can't. So I'm going to be super crit. Um, But then that, that enforces the ableism because then... The next person that comes after me who may not be able or want to do those things is like seen as less than because they're not super grip. 
And then um, inspiration porn is using those things to objectify uh, people with disabilities. Is that what was happening with that South African Olympian that had prosthetic running legs, essentially, mm-hmm. that Olympic? Okay. Yes. That's what, that's, that's immediately what came to mind, so. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, and he is the classic example of it. I mean, there are many reasons not to do that, but he is the er example because then you find about we've lifted this guy up and like other like all humans, there's some really dark stuff yeah. behind the curtain and then oops. <laughs> some skeletons came out of the closet. I was like, he's not that super anymore, right? (laughs) (laughs) I do want to ask, too, because you, um, Justin, really talked about the need for community among folks with disabilities and those in ministry, um, either with your time um, with one of the focuses of the Julian Way. How important is it, do you think, it is for those who are in the process of discerning or in the process of ordination to have and know others that have disabilities that are called to ministry? Um, I think it's essential. Um, I think it's essential in the fact that uh, being called to ministry is such a, is such a, a circumstance that is going to require you to be vulnerable and to be open to folks in a way that a lot of other uh, fields and career paths are not. So you need to have those around you who um, can journey with you and can not just not so that they can show you, I well, I've done it too, but more so that they can be with you when things get hard in a particularly uh, disabled uh, way. And when you have, like for me, um, I've come, as I've gotten older, I've had to come to the reality that my energy level is about... 85 to 90 percent of what a what a what a quote-unquote typical able-bodied person would be and it is that is something i resisted a long time because i was like i'm gonna work myself to the boat and then i'm gonna get home and i'm gonna collapse for six hours and i'm gonna get up in the morning and do it all again can't stop me and I'm um, smiling because I have that too. Like, I'm going to do it. But again, it's living into that super crip stereotype. And it was meeting uh, folks like my friend Jeremy Skipper, who at the time was a professor of Old Testament at Temple. And uh, now his wife and him are teaching in Toronto. And Jeremy was the first adult person I ever met outside of my count, my counselors at summer camp nearly 30 years ago who were adults living with disabilities. And I cannot tell you how having him 
as one of my best friends, changed my perspective on community and disability self-support and advocacy. So I think it's a, it's essential because it helps. It gives us a place to, to mirror back to ourselves our own experience. As diverse as the experience of disability uh, can be. Yeah, I love that. Um, one of the other guests, which um, which uh, will be on the podcast, uh, Hank. So Hank, which you know, uh, was the first person that I met that was a pastor and has a disability. So it was while we have very diverse experiences of the world, him being a white male person who wasn't born with a disability, he, it it like helped me and gave me like made me feel like I wasn't alone in the process of of God calling me to ministry and that like somebody is doing it so I could do it too, but not in the like inspirational way, but just to say it's good it's like rep representation matters. So yeah. Yeah. Last question. I'm just wanting to know if there is anything that we haven't talked about that you want to be sure to say or anything you want to plug or how folks can get connected to you and, and the Julian way. Yeah. So you can, uh, you can find our ministry. We have a website, the julianway.org, uh, which is going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Uh, folks can also always email me. Uh, gmail.com is the email that is also my main work email. Um, but I would say the thing that I'm most excited about plugging right now is probably uh, the uh, the Palsies with Palsies podcast, uh, which um, started out as me and my best friend Rebecca Mint, yeah, uh, we we lived in a Christian community together, and we would always have these really deep and really silly conversations late at night. And we said, you know, I know what's missing from the world. People need us to put microphones in front of ourselves and have these conversations on air. Um, so. That's what we we did, and that was a way of like expressing our world of pop culture love and geek love through a disability and a queer lens. And then when Rebecca Mintz went back to school, um, my colleague at the Julian Way, Rebecca Marin Anderson, stepped in and became my co-host, and I'll, I'll just. I love telling this story because it's just so the way God works. Uh, our running joke on Palsies with Palsies is that Rebecca Marin Anderson, my new co-host, and Rebecca Mitz are exactly the same person from different dimensions because they both uh, live out of a queer experience. They both love pop culture. And they both uh, 
Dungeon Master at least two or three Dungeons and Dragons games simultaneously. So I just uh, wound up in a dimensional wormhole and swapped swapped one Rebecca for another. And but um, Rebecca Marin, my new co-host, also lives with a sighted sighted disability. So. Palsies with Palsies is a place where we have conversations about the intersectionality of disability, queerness, uh, social justice of all stripes. So it's it's kind of the, the cutting edge of where the Julian Way is headed. All right. Well, thanks so much, Justin. Uh, it's been great having this conversation with you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank y'all so much. I've enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, guys. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Latia Frazier. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.